All right. Welcome back. Welcome back. We're going to be in Mark chapter 3 this morning. We're continuing our journey through the book of Mark, verse by verse. So we'll be picking it up in verse 13 here in just a minute. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'd encourage you to go there on your own. And I know we have a handful of folks today who are with us for the first time. So I'll just mention to you, uh, anytime we preach through a book of the Bible, we have a tool that we make available to you at no cost. Uh, It's just a copy of the book of the Bible that we're working through, in this case, Mark's Gospel, uh, in a translation that we usually use, which in this case is the ESV. Uh, And we have that prepared as a scripture journal. So we have it such that if you would like a copy of the scripture journal, you can get one at the welcome desk in the lobby today. You can even go grab one right now if you want to. You have a minute before we're going to get to the text. Uh, But the idea would be that as we work through these books of the Bible verse by verse, that you're building a resource for yourself, that you're able to uh, jot down notes, maybe points that I make that you think are particularly helpful or clarifying, but also that as you go, you have sort of a guide for your own personal reading during the week, that you can come back and address questions or uh, jot down things that maybe didn't make sense and, and get with me personally to talk about those or bring them to your life group. And so if you don't have one of those and you would like to use one, again, please grab one. Uh, We have a lot right now, and we would love to put one in your hands. And we're going to be in Mark for a while, probably another couple of years. So I would love for you to have that tool available to you as a resource just to help you uh, navigate where we're going in the text. Um, We, so far in Mark's gospel, have met Jesus, obviously. He's the main character. Uh, We've encountered a group of antagonists in Jesus' life who are called the Pharisees. There's also groups like the scribes and the Sadducees who sort of go along with the Pharisees, but they all fall under one umbrella. These are legalists. These are people who live their lives not just according to what a law says, but they, excuse me, they find their identity and their sense of value in whether or not they're keeping that law. And they also pick on other people based on if those people can follow through with the law or not. We've also met a big crowd. This is a relatively new development in Jesus' life as he's done some miracles where he's healed people's uh, broken and withered hands, their paralyzed limbs. He's cast away demons that have oppressed different people. The word is getting out in the region of Galilee. Even though Jesus has told the, the demons he's encountered to never tell anybody who he is, word is still traveling fast that there's a new rabbi on the scene who isn't just a great teacher, but can do things that no one else has been able to do before. And so there's a big crowd that follows Jesus, and oftentimes he'll step away from the crowd. That's where we'll be this morning as he starts by leaving the crowd behind for a brief moment of time. But they tend to always find him because word travels fast. And then finally we have his disciples, or the word that I've used with you for the last couple of years is apprentices, because I think it better communicates what the lifestyle was of a man or a woman who followed Jesus day to day. Now we've met a handful of those apprentices. There are names that you'll probably recognize, like Peter. Peter's brother is Andrew. So far, both of those men have joined Jesus in his journey. Jesus has actually spent a considerable amount of time at Peter's house in the city of Capernaum with Peter's mother-in-law, with the rest of his family, healing people, spending the night there, uh, having meals, things like that. We've also met James and John, who are sons of a man named Zebedee. They're brothers, just like Andrew and Simon Peter are brothers. And we've met Philip and Nathaniel, and that's about as far as we've gotten in Mark's gospel. The other three gospels sort of work together to paint a picture for who these disciples are. This morning, we're going to meet all 12. This is the first point in Mark's gospel where Mark lays out for us who the 12 disciples were. And I want to be clear with you on some terminology. Oftentimes in church, we refer to these 12 men as, quote-unquote, the 12 disciples, when in reality there was anywhere between 70 and several hundred what we would call disciples or apprentices of Jesus at any one time. These 12 are unique, as we're going to see here in Mark chapter 3 today. 
because they are commissioned. They're chosen to do something specific. Jesus gives them uh, an objective and a goal that's unique to the 12 of them. And if you read on through the early church in the book of Acts and Paul's letter to the Romans and some of the other epistles, you'll find that these same 12 names keep popping up over and over again because these men took the mission that Jesus gave them extremely seriously. And they worked on it together, and they stayed connected to one another, and they cross-referenced each other when there were issues. There's a great scene in the book of Acts where some Jewish Christians are trying to force non-Jewish Christians to go through temple rites and sacrifices and circumcision and all this stuff that Jesus didn't teach. And the disciples, these 12, many of them get together in Jerusalem, and they have a big debate about whether or not Jewish Christians are different from Gentile Christians. And there's this beautiful moment where Peter gets up and he says, we were saved by grace in spite of all the acts that we did for the law. So anybody else is going to be saved by grace as well. And so we continue to see them pop up, but this is the first time that we get a list of their names. And so what I want to do with you today is to try to help you get to know what I'm referring to as the first graduating class of the Jesus Christ School of Eternal Life. These are his guys. This is the class of 33 uh, AD, and they did their best to follow him for three years. We'll see as we follow their stories. Some fell away. Some were not faithful. I think most of them didn't even understand what Jesus was doing until after he rose from the dead and taught them for 40 days. So let's look at Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Before I get too far ahead of myself, we'll see what Jesus does. Jesus went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. So he's calling them by name, probably out of this big group of people, anywhere from 70 to several hundred disciples. Jesus is naming these 12 individual men that he wants to come up on the mountainside with him, to retreat for just a minute, and to speak to them personally and privately. Verse 14, he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. Apostles comes from the Greek word apostolos, which simply means sent ones, those who have been sent out. So this is where the shift enters in. These 12 are disciples, and we can call them the 12 disciples if we want to, but really they're the 12 apostles. There are many disciples who came to Jesus and chose to follow. These are the disciples to whom Jesus says, yes, you're following me, but also I'm going to send you out. And you're going to begin to proselytize and evangelize, and you yourselves will eventually become like rabbis, like I am, and you will create followers that will know me. And all of this shows up in Matthew chapter 28 before Jesus ascends, where he says, go into the ends of the earth and make disciples and baptize them and teach them. This is the beginning of that here in Mark chapter 3. Jesus did this so that they might be with Jesus and that he might send them out to preach and to have the authority to cast away or cast out demons. Verse 16, he appointed these 12. So here are their names. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Peter coming from the Greek word Petros, meaning rock. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom Jesus gave, gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder in Greek. Andrew, who is Peter's brother. Philip and Bartholomew, also called Nathaniel. And Matthew, who used to be called Levi. And Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, the other James. Thaddeus, who's also called Judas, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. Now, I said this to you a minute ago, but I want to make sure it really sinks in. Jesus had a lot more followers than just these 12 guys. I would consider if, if Jesus is a pastor, okay, this is a sort of a poor analogy, but if, if Jesus is a pastor and there's several hundred people that go to his church, these 12 are in his life group. Or these 12 are attending a discipleship class with him. These are the men who don't just show up when he does the big public teachings once in a while. These are the guys who camp with him at night and cook food with him and ask him an unending series of obnoxious questions <laughs> if you read the rest of the Gospels. These are the guys that knew him best. They were closest to him. And I think for that reason, these are the 12 that he ends up sending out at different points 
in his ministry before he's killed, and then eventually, 11 of these 12, Judas Iscariot ends up taking his own life right after Jesus has died. Uh, But the other 11 of these 12 go on to be the earliest church planters and overseers of those churches. So these men are, as you can see, Simon, who's also called Simon Peter, or just Peter, Andrew, who's the brother of Peter, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, called sons of thunder by Jesus, Philip and his friend Nathaniel uh, from Bethsaida. Nathaniel is referred to in this uh, gospel by his name Bartholomew. You'll see that many of the disciples, or in this case apostles, have two names. They have a Jewish name, and they have a Greek name, and they would use different names depending on who they were interacting with and, and where they were in town, because Israel was a vassal state of Rome, so you kind of had to have two names. Matthew, who was a tax collector before Jesus called him. Thomas, who actually has great faith, even though we know him more so for his doubts. James is the disciple that we know the least about, to the point that Matthew refers to him as James the Lesser in Matthew chapter 15. So there was cool James, I guess, and then there was like, that's the other James. If you're, that's not the James you're looking for. <laughs> then there's Judas, who's called Thaddeus in Mark's gospel, and I think you would probably change your name too if it was Judas and you were hanging with the other Judas, the bad Judas. Then we have Simon the Zealot, who was a religious fanatic and a trained killer. We'll get there in a minute. And we have Judas Iscariot, who loved money and feared man more than he loved or feared God. This is Jesus' life group. These are the kinds of people that he spent all of his time with. Not one of these men got it at any point in the three years that they were with Jesus. They did not suddenly become faithful. They continued to question him up until the very last minute. When he's in the upper room with them, they're having dinner together, they're preparing to go out into the garden. He's just told them, I'm prepared to die, and they don't understand what he's talking about. In their minds, he's still primarily a political liberator. He's there to wage war on Rome and set the Jewish people free and reestablish the throne of King David and make sure that there's always a ruler in Israel over the Jewish people, and they just don't get it. The idea that their rabbi is a savior for the whole world, that anybody who would put their faith in this Jesus could be saved anywhere at any time is the furthest thing from their imaginations. Now, I'll show you again. This is those same 12 names arranged a little bit differently. Some of you are visual learners, so maybe this funky thing I made will help you grab onto this idea. Here's what we're going to do today. The majority of our time this morning is going to be teaching. So I hope you like the Bible because we have like 41 slides of Bible that we're going to get through today. What I want to do for you is try to give you a clear mental image of each of these 12 men, because we don't know what they looked like. And oftentimes when we see them portrayed in media, whether it be cartoons or movies, many of you may have watched this new series called The Chosen, there's quite a bit of artistic license with the way that these guys are portrayed. And there has to be, because we don't know that much about them. But I think there are, at least for each of these men, one defining characteristic that I hope will help you understand that these guys are not better than you, They're not totally different from you. In fact, they're very similar to you and the kinds of people that you spend your life around. And that's where we'll go with application at the end this morning is what do we do with that. So I would encourage you, if you're taking notes, to find a way to either draw or list the men who make up the graduating class of 33 AD. And as we work through their names, jot down a characteristic or two that sticks out to you that may help you form a memory. Uh, If you want to get set up to do that, I'm going to leave this slide on the screen for you for a minute, and I want to tell you a story to try to help you understand why it's important to think of these guys as a group. So, uh, I eat a ton of sugar. Many of you know that I have a particular affinity for Oreos. You've heard about this before, me in the kitchen at 3 a.m. eating a whole sleeve. I confess this to you on at least one occasion. But you might be surprised to learn that I also love ice cream. 
I love snow cones. My life group will tell you that I own a snow cone machine that I purchased from Amazon, and I make my own snow cone syrups in my kitchen in the middle of the night out of Kool-Aid powder and sugar. I also love donuts. Uh, I love cake. I love pie. I love cookies. I love cookie dough. I love candy. I love milkshakes. Really anything that has a whole lot of sugar in it. And I eat these kinds of things all the time. Like I know a lot of people exercise because they want to be able to perform well in a sport or they want to fit into a certain size clothes. I exercise so I can keep eating junk all the time. That's sort of me, just a little bit of exercise in one side of the scales, two or three milkshakes in the other, and life goes on. It's a good life. I've enjoyed it so far. But about a week ago, here's what I started to think to myself. I started thinking maybe I should try to give up added sugar just to see what happens. Maybe I would feel better. Maybe I would have a better sense of mental clarity. The summer's coming. I usually eat even worse in the summer because the sun's always out, and it's fun, and nobody knows what time it is, and so you're just kind of always snacking everywhere you are in Alaska. And I thought, let's do this. Let's take the month of May, and I'm just this kind of person. I just arbitrarily set goals for myself for no reason but to see if I can do it. Let's take the month of May, and I'm going to give up added sugar. That doesn't mean all the sugar everywhere. I'll still let myself have a little bit of sugar here and there, but the treats, the desserts, I'm getting rid of them. Well, I don't know how to do that. So I sent a text message on Wednesday to my life group, and I said, hey, have any of you guys ever given up added sugar? I'm thinking about doing it in May. Do you have any advice for me? And then I was busy. Wednesday's a writing day for me, so I put my phone down for about a half an hour, and I went away and did other stuff. And I came back and grabbed my phone, and there were like eight or nine text messages, and basically like half of my life group, instead of giving me the advice that I asked for, had said, we'll give up sugar too. And I was like... Okay, so I guess we're, so, th so then about a half hour later of talking about it in the life group, basically all but two people in our life group jumped on board this movement I didn't even know I was starting about giving up added sugar in May, okay? I, I, I think I had made this joke in our group text, but I, I was just trying to figure out how to eat less Sour Patch Kids without getting depressed, and instead I feel like I started a multi-level marketing company. Like everybody was like, and I have another friend, and they did it this way, and here's how you do it, and, I, and so anyway, so we're off to the races together. It starts tomorrow. You can pray for us that we're going to try to not do added sugar. You better believe I've been packing my diet with sugar the last 48 hours, so if I seem a little bit uh, different. That's probably what's going on. I haven't done anything other than that that's different. But here's the deal. Sometimes you look around yourself and you notice that you're a part of a group. And maybe it's a group that you meant to be a part of. Maybe it was just an idea that attracted you. And so in like following that idea, in pursuing that change you wanted to make, you suddenly look around and realize there's other people here as well. I don't think that's a bad thing. In my case, it's giving up sugar for 31 days and we'll see. If it goes well, maybe I'll stick with it. If not, I'll probably go back to consuming more sugar than I should because I can survive that. In my case, my goal is to get to June 1st without breaking that commitment. And having those other people around me, though it wasn't something that I thought I was pursuing initially, it's a good and right thing. It's going to help me. No doubt will I be more accountable and more effective in trying to give up sugar and walk away from that if there are other people in step with me. This, I think, was the experience of the disciples. As we work our way through the identities of these 12 men, what I want you to understand is, aside from just a couple of them, None of them invited the others in. None of them was like the, the theological upline, if you will, in their sort of pyramid scheme of following Jesus. Not at all. Jesus calls each of these people individually, and they come to him. He's the objective, and he's the goal. But then one day, they wake up in the morning around this dead campfire with 11 other knuckleheads that have all tried to follow Jesus, and they have to figure out what they're going to do about this. How will they be a group? Will they work together? Is there something specifically communal about the way that Jesus called them and what he has in mind for their future? I think that that is the case. My goal, of course, is to give up sugar. Their goal is to follow Jesus. It's to belong to him. It's to behold him, to see what he's doing, and then eventually to become like him. And they couldn't do this alone, and neither can we. And so whether it's healthy boundaries with Oreos, in my case, 
or it's following Jesus. In all of our cases, who we do life with matters. And what I want you to notice this morning is that these 12 ordinary men who Jesus called to himself, they're much the same as you and I are. Oftentimes they appear to be very afraid of things that maybe feel a little bit silly to be upset about. Many of them are sensitive. They get their feelings hurt or they speak up at the wrong time because they're misunderstanding what Jesus is saying or whether or not his life is at risk. They're often ambitious, trying to step over one another in sort of the pecking order of what it means to be an apostle and get closer and closer to Jesus and push each other down. They're often aggressive. They show themselves to be impatient because ultimately they are broken. And that's what we'll see today. None of these men are perfect. None of these men are probably the kinds of people that we would even be willing to hire to put on a church staff at a church that we were a part of. And yet, Jesus looked at them, saw their humanity, saw that they could have faith, and called them to do just that, just to have faith. Not to become brand new overnight, but to follow him and let him do that work. So let's get to know them. We're going to start with Peter. For each of these disciples, I have a slide for you. You can grab any of the information that's relevant to you. Uh, I'm not a visual learner, I'm an audible learner, but many of you are visual, and so I tried to grab like a symbol to go with each of these guys just to give you a little bit more of a memory, more of an anchor point. Uh, we don't know what they look like, so I can't show you their picture, but I can try to give you a way to differentiate them from each other. So uh, do with that what you will. We have Peter, who was born Simon. That's the name that his parents gave him when he was born in Bethsaida. He eventually moved to the city of Capernaum, uh, where he met Jesus. He lived in Capernaum with his wife and her family there. Uh, including his mother-in-law in the home. We read about her early in the book of Mark when Jesus healed her of a life-threatening fever. And he was business partners with James and John, who are the sons of Zebedee, who would also eventually become apprentices to Jesus. Now, in the latter years of Peter's life, he spent his last few decades as a missionary to Rome, where he was eventually crucified for refusing to say out loud in a public setting that the emperor of Rome was a god. Peter said, no, I have one god, and he's alive, and he's not you, Caesar, or whoever you think you are. And I don't hate you, but I'm not going to bow down to you. So for that reason, Peter was arrested multiple times. Eventually, he was arrested and crucified. And church tradition tells us, though this is not in the Bible, that Peter requested to be crucified upside down because he did not want to be crucified in the exact same way as Jesus. Uh, as you read through the Gospels, especially Mark's Gospel, which is the oral history of Peter, the apostle, we find that Peter is kind of a loudmouth. He has frequent word vomit as he tries to make sense of Jesus' teaching by out loud processing. There's this great story where Jesus and James, excuse me, Peter and James and John are with Jesus on a mountainside, and Jesus is glorified. So he goes from looking like a normal man or woman like you and I would, just regular skin, regular hair, regular clothes, and he's like glowing, and the disciples can't look right at him because he's too bright. And Elijah is there, who's been dead a long time, and there's another prophet who's present, and they hear God's voice, and there's this cloud that's hard to understand. And James and John are just quiet. They just kind of sit back and go, I don't know what's going on here, but we're going to just roll with this. And Peter's like, Jesus, do you want me to make you a tent so we can stay here longer? And Jesus is like, you need to be quiet, Peter. You don't have any idea what's going on right now. It's, that's just so Peter. He just like looks around, wants to be helpful, doesn't know what to do. So even in the time where he meets Jesus... He's kind of like all in or all out. So I want you to see that. This is from Luke chapter 5, uh, verses 8 through 11. When Simon Peter saw what Jesus had done, he fell down at Jesus' feet and he said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For Peter and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. This is the story where Jesus goes into their boat, tells them to push off from the shore to fish. They say, the fish are not biting today. Jesus says, do what I said. They do it and they haul in enough fish that it almost sinks their boats, okay? Okay. 
So they were astonished at, how, at the catch of fish that they had taken, and so were James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were Simon's business partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid, from now on you will be catching people. And so when they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and they followed him. You see Peter initially saying, Jesus, you're so holy, get away from me, I'm sinful, I'm wicked, I don't want to get hit by lightning by standing too close to you, he's very dramatic. And then as soon as they get back to shore and Jesus says, actually I'm here to call you, to follow me, Peter's like, done, like dumps all his business cards into the ocean, leaves his nets behind, he's done, he's no longer Peter the fisherman, he is all in with Jesus. This is a great microcosm of who, Jesus, of who Peter is every time he shows up in the Gospels alongside Jesus. Next is his brother Andrew. Andrew is the younger brother of Peter, and he is chronologically Jesus' first disciple, according to John. Listen to how John tells it in the first chapter of his gospel. This is John chapter 1, verses 36 through 40. Gazing at Jesus as he walked by, John the baptizer said out loud, Look, the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard him say this, which we think that these two are, one is Andrew, because he's named, the other we think is probably Philip, who were already following John and then left John to follow Jesus. So when they heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Verse 38, Jesus turned around, and he saw them following, and he said to them, what do you want with me? And so they said to him, Rabbi, which is translated as teacher, where are you staying? Jesus answered them and said, come and you will see. So that's the invitation. Come and follow me, and then you'll know the answer to what you ask. So they did. They came, and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. Now it was about four o'clock in the afternoon. Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, was one of the two disciples who heard what John said and who followed Jesus. Andrew was very likely the model apprentice of the group because he had followed a rabbi before. The rest of these guys are totally rough around the edges. They're, they're diamonds in the rough. If they even are diamonds, they're just in the rough. And here's Andrew and also possibly Philip who have followed John, who know what it means to be a disciple. They, they understand what's expected that you hold his coat when he's preaching and you make sure that he has a place to sleep at night and you help him find food. And none of the rest of these guys have any idea how any of that works at all. And so I think Andrew is there in a way to sort of go first. He also very likely witnessed Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River and several of the early miracles that Jesus did because he was following John the baptizer around, who was Jesus' cousin and his first rabbi. Now, according to an old book called Fox's Book of Martyrs, Andrew died by crucifixion as well, and he said this as he was approaching the cross. He said, O cross most welcome and longed for, with a Willing mind, joyfully and desirously, I come to you. He's speaking to the cross that he's about to die on. Being a scholar of him which did hang on you. He's talking about Jesus. Because I have always been your lover, and I yearn to embrace you. How's that for the model disciple, huh? Led to the cross at the end of his life, and he's going, bring it on. Here's my wrists, and here's my feet. Do your worst to me. Pretty amazing. Next is James. James being one of two brothers who are born of a man named Zebedee, who is probably a relatively wealthy fisherman in the city of Capernaum. James is the older brother of John, his brother, and his reputation was that he was bold, to the point that Jesus referred to him and his brother both as sons of thunder. As part of Jesus' inner three, I explained to you that James, John, and Peter were the ones there when Jesus was transfigured on the mountainside. They were also there when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead in Mark chapter 5. We'll get there uh, hopefully in a couple of months. Uh, they were there when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying, when he asked them to stay awake and pray with him all night, and instead they slept the whole time, and Jesus had to come back and scold them more than once. James is also, chronologically, the first disciple to be martyred. He was beheaded uh, by King Herod 
early on in the life of the church. So while the other apostles were trying to figure out what the church is going to be like and do they need to plant more churches and what are the rules and can they get along with the Roman government? Can they get along with the Jewish government? Uh, John was, James excuse me, was captured and he was killed in Acts chapter 12. Herod had his head cut off during a big festival so that all the Jewish people could celebrate that another one of these Jesus-following heretics had been killed. John, his brother, uh, known as, quote, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was also part of the inner three with James and Peter. And John wrote more about love in the New Testament than any other New Testament author. John wrote the Gospel according to John, the fourth of the four Gospels. He also wrote 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, and he's very likely the author of what we call the Book of Revelation, or the Revelation of Jesus Christ, which came to John as a vision when he was exiled to the island of Patmos. Uh, the emperor who exiled him there passed away before John died, and John was allowed to go back to Ephesus, where he functioned as sort of a bishop, kind of like an elder in residence at different churches, traveling and teaching and sharing the gospel until he died in about A.D. 100. The most interesting thing, in my opinion, about John is that he beat Peter in a foot race on Easter morning. I thought about making his symbol like a track shoe instead of a quill pen. Uh, if you read John's gospel, it's very interesting. You're reading this dramatic flow of events, and you're right on the edge of your seat. Are they going to find Jesus? Is he going to come back to life? And John just sneaks in uh, that he smoked Peter on the way to the, to the tomb. So take that, Peter. Uh, Peter doesn't fire back in Mark's gospel, so I guess he thought that was pretty fair. Next up is Philip, the disciple. Philip grew up in Bethsaida, the same town where Peter and Andrew were born. And Jesus called Philip, who had likely been a disciple of John the Baptist, along with Andrew, in John chapter 1. Uh, Philip went and found Nathanael, who we also refer to as Bartholomew, and told him about Jesus. And at that point, Nathanael also became Jesus' disciple. Now, after the Last Supper, Philip spoke up. He, he said to Jesus, uh, Jesus, why won't you reveal the Father to us? Show us the Father, O Lord. To which Jesus replied, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And so this shows us that Philip's desire, though he'd followed Jesus for three years, was still to see God high and lifted up on his throne, exalted and glorified. The very last time that the Bible mentions the disciple Philip is as those who are gathered together in Jerusalem to pray for the coming of the Holy Spirit after Jesus ascended back to heaven. Uh, in my opinion, Philip comes off the pages of the Bible as a sort of just-do-it kind of personality, a pragmatist, someone who wants to know, can we get to the point, can we do the thing that we came to do? Nathaniel, who, as I told you earlier, was also known as Bartholomew, uh, demonstrated both his purity of heart and his skepticism at the same time in his initial encounter with Jesus in John chapter 1. This is John chapter 1, beginning in verse 45. Philip, who had just met Jesus, went and found Nathaniel and said to him, we have found him of whom Jesus, excuse me, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, namely Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So there's that skepticism. He has beef with the Nazarites, for, or the, how would you say that? The Nazarenes, I think, is the right way to say that uh, in general. I don't know what the big deal is about that city. Maybe they're high school rivals, but Nathanael's saying, I don't think it can be Jesus because of where he was born. There's not a chance in the world. So Philip says, well, then come and see. If you think I'm a liar, come prove me wrong. Verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said, Behold, here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. So yes, Nathanael is skeptical at first, but also Jesus sees through that skepticism to the genuine heart that's seeking the truth and wants answers underneath that sense of skepticism. Nathanael said, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him and said, Before Philip called you, when you were sitting under the fig tree, I saw you. 
And then Nathaniel got the chills, because you would too. He's like, whoa, you knew where I was sitting? So he says, Rabbi, you must be the son of God. You are the king of Israel. You can see that as skeptical as Nathaniel was, he was ready to be proven wrong when confronted with evidence that he could not deny. He finished his life by sharing the gospel in Armenia, where he was eventually skinned and beheaded for his faith in Jesus. In fact, John is the only of the 11 disciples who survived Jesus' ascension who was not martyred for his faith. All the other 10 of these men were killed brutally for their commitment to Christ. Next we have Thomas. Thomas, who is also called Didymus, and who was full of faith and passion, though he is, I think, unfortunately, mostly known for being, quote-unquote, doubting Thomas. Uh, He has some doubts, sure, but I would argue that the doubts he has, if you read the story closely, are rooted in his commitment to Jesus. That he wants so badly to not be tricked or fooled or to go on this sort of emotional roller coaster ride with the other apostles that he wants some proof and evidence. That's not because he is a skeptic and doesn't want Jesus to be who he says he is. It's because he believes so totally that Jesus is unique and therefore he demands evidence before he's willing to put his trust in this new guy who's shown up in their midst and claimed to be the risen Christ. In John chapters 10 and 11, a lot earlier in the story, Jesus was perceived as a public threat. This happens a couple of times in his ministry where groups of people get together and they decide that they need to kill Jesus because he's too threatening to be left alive. So the Pharisees and those who have political and religious power got together and decided that the next time that they encountered Jesus in public, that they would stone him to death. Jesus heard about this, his apostles heard about this, and so they crossed over the Jordan River, which sort of separates the region of uh, Israel from some of the surrounding nations, And they began to do ministry in a different area so that Jesus wouldn't be captured and wouldn't be stoned. In that period of time, word got back to Jesus that one of his best friends named Lazarus, you probably know the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead, Mary and Martha are his sisters, that Lazarus had passed away. He was very sick and that he had died. And so Jesus says to his disciples, let's go. Let's go back across the Jordan River into the place where people are hunting me down to try to kill me. And I want you to see this scene play out. This is John 11, 14. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sake that I was not there, implying that Jesus could have healed him. Why? Because now you will believe. Jesus knows that when they go back, Jesus will raise Lazarus from the dead back to life, and that will birth a kind of faith in his disciples that nothing else would really create. But let us go to him. So Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us go too, so that we may die with Jesus. Now that seems really out of context if you're just reading chunks of scripture at a time, but if you've read John 10 and the first half of John 11, you understand that Thomas is saying, if we cross back over the Jordan River, these people are going to find Jesus, especially if he goes to this man's tomb and raises him from the dead, he might as well fire flares into the air of where he is so that people can find him, and Thomas is like, okay, bring it, we'll die too. If that's what it takes to follow you, Jesus, we'll go anywhere. It's a little bit different, I think, than the doubting Thomas that's often portrayed for us in movies and TV shows. Next up, we have Matthew. Matthew, you should be familiar with because we read his story in Mark chapter 2 just about a month ago. Matthew was born as a man named Levi. Uh, His name was changed after he followed Jesus and after he abandoned his job. He worked as a tax collector, born and raised in Capernaum, using his given name. And Matthew was two things that the rest of the Jewish guys in Jesus' cohort really hated. He was a Hellenist, which meant that he was Jewish in ethnicity, but he sold out to Roman culture. He wore Roman clothes. He only listened to Roman music. He spoke Greek instead of speaking Hebrew or Aramaic. Uh, He only ate Roman foods. He was doing his best to be sort of like uh, 
an exiled Roman in Jerusalem, rejecting his history and his heritage and the temple and all the things that made him uniquely Jewish. Now, worse than being a Hellenist, because that's just sort of like a hobby, that's kind of like the way that you dress and what you're into, he was also what's called a Herodian, which means he was loyal to Herod. Herod was the puppet king of Israel. Truly, Rome was in charge. But they put Herod on the throne so that the Israelites wouldn't rebel and so that they could collect taxes. And Herod did everything possible to sell out his city. He would give Rome as much money as they wanted. He would allow soldiers to stay in people's homes. He would take away livestock and money and land from his own people and give them to the Roman government just to make sure that the Roman government, which was kind of his sugar daddy, kept him uh, connected to them in a way where he was happy. He had everything he wanted, big throne, big house, big castle, lots of power. And Levi was known for being loyal both to the culture of Rome and to the puppet government that Rome had propped up in Israel. If you were truly an Israelite, especially somebody who was practicing temple Judaism, where you were making sacrifices and going on pilgrimages and trying to keep the Old Testament law, Levi wasn't just a bad guy. He was unclean. You wouldn't want to touch him. You wouldn't walk on the same side of the street as him. When he came into your home to collect taxes, you would literally have to burn incense and paint blood on different surfaces that he touched to try to get the stench and the, the vibe, if you will, of Levi out of your house because of how filthy he was. Of course, Jesus called him, and immediately... Levi got up from his tax booth, renounced his old way of life, left everything behind, according to Luke, and followed Jesus. And that's why we know him as Matthew, who ended up writing Matthew's gospel. Now, one of my favorites here is who I'll call James the Anonymous. I made a joke earlier that we don't know a lot about James, that unfortunately Matthew refers to him as James the Lesser. The literal translation of James the Lesser is actually James who is less than. So if anybody's ever made you feel less than, imagine that being written on your name tag. Everywhere you go, people are like, hey, I grew up in Capernaum. I heard James and John, Zebedee's sons are here. Is James around? And there's James the Lesser. Did somebody say James? And they're like, no, not you. We're talking about James the Greater, not James the Lesser. You can go back into the background and fade into, the, into obscurity again. Um, we only see him appear here on the Gospels list of apostles. And again, when the apostles are listed in the book of Acts, when they pray, when they pray for the Holy Spirit after Jesus has ascended and gone back to heaven. Um, I like to think of James as the patron saint of nobodies. Okay, three to go, and we're making good time here. Next is good Judas. So we're going to talk about good Judas, and we're going to talk about bad Judas. You'll understand the difference here, I think. This is tricky. Maybe you didn't know that there were two Judases among Jesus' disciples, but there were. This Judas is the good one. He is also known as Thaddeus. At one point, he goes by the name Labaius. Then he goes by Jude, which is kind of short for Judas. Um, I like to call him Judas because that's what his mom named him, okay? I don't think she knew there was going to be a Judas Iscariot whose shadow her good boy Judas was going to have to live in all of his life. So I think we should just honor that and call him Judas. I would like to think that if he had been born any earlier in history, he would have used the name Judas with pride. Uh, it's similar if you look back at baby name conventions that we haven't had that many Adolphs since about 1945, if you know what I'm saying. Yes, so same idea here. Uh, in John 14, Jesus was preparing his disciples for his own death, and he says this to them, beginning in verse 21. He says, the person who has my commandments and who obeys them is the one who loves me. One of Jesus' themes of his teaching. If you want to demonstrate love, you do that with obedience. You don't just say, I love you and I wish I was different. You say, I love you, so I'm going to do the hard things that you told me to try to do. The one who loves me will also be loved by my Father, Jesus says, and I will love that person and I will reveal myself to that person. Lord, Judas, not Judas Iscariot. So even the gospel writers are like, not that one, the other one, said, what has happened that you are going to reveal yourself to us and not the world? So this is revelatory for this guy. 
good Judas is raising his hand and saying, wait a second, it's just us? It's just us 12? Why wouldn't you show the world? I mean, lay it all out there. Who wouldn't follow you if they could know that this was the truth, if this is the way, that you are the life? Jesus answers and says, if anybody loves me, then he will obey my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and take up residence with him. The person who does not love me does not obey my words and the word you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. In other words, Jesus is saying, this is not about some uh, setting where I get on a stage and I say a bunch of cool stuff and you guys give me a standing ovation at the end because you've never heard anything like that in your lives. This is a movement of love, Judas, and I've given you the love that you need and you'll give that love to the people, I believe, I hope, I pray to the Father. You'll be faithful to show that love to those who are around you and this is the way that the church will grow. What a great question, though, from Judas. This shows us why Judas was good. He wants the world to know Jesus. You could argue that he ha- he's the first person, maybe John the baptizer is before him, but Judas is the first one who seems to be evangelistic in the posture of his heart, in the bent of his personality. He wants the truth of the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. Good Judas was eventually beaten to death with a club as a martyr in the ancient kingdom of Edessa, which is now the southeastern portion of Turkey today. So he became the evangelist that we thought he would. He went to what to him was the ends of the earth and shared the gospel with anybody who would hear it to the point that he lost his life because of the stand that he took on truth. Okay, Simon the Zealot, my number one favorite apostle. Simon the Zealot, very, very cool in my mind. Uh, I played a lot of video games growing up, so you'll figure out in a minute why I liked him so much. Simon is called Zealot not because of his zeal or his passion for the gospel or for God. He was called Zealot because he was part of a religious extremist group that were called the Zealots or the Sicarii, which is better translated as the Dagger Men. Yeah, Simon had a knife on him all the time. Real talk. Simon hated Rome. He hated taxes. He hated Matthew because Matthew sold himself out to the Roman government. And the tactic of the Dagger Men, the Sicarii, was that they would mingle in crowds during festivals. And they would slip up behind a victim and then kill them with their Sicarii, which is what they were named after, which is like a short curved knife. And the effect of this was a reign of terror that effectively disrupted the Roman government in Jerusalem for decades. Now, catch this detail. I bet you've read this verse a thousand times and you didn't know what was going on here. Moments before Jesus left the last Passover that he shared with his disciples, on the night that he was betrayed, he spoke with them about what was going to happen. This is from Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 35. Jesus said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag, with no traveler's bag, with no sandals, you didn't lack anything, did you? And the 12 apostles replied, well, at this point, it's the 11. Judas Iscariot's already gone away. They replied and said, no, nothing. He said to them, but now the one who has a money bag must take it, and likewise a traveler's bag too. And the one who has no sword must sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, quote, and he, speaking about Jesus, was counted with the transgressors, for what is written about me is being fulfilled. So Jesus obviously made a reference there to swords, He says, sell your coat, buy a sword if you don't have one. He's using figurative language to say, you're going to be perceived as rebels. You're going to be perceived as the kind of people that are always leading revolutions and uprisings because you're going to go counter to the culture. You're not going to bow to the kings. You're not going to be who the world wants you to be. So the disciples answer him in verse 38, and they say, look, Lord, here are two swords. Now, this is interesting. If you read the Bible the way that I do, you go, what in the world is going on with that? Did they just have two swords that they passed around? They draw straws to see who was on guard duty at night? No. We know that Simon Peter had a sword because just a few hours after this event, he draws that sword and cuts off the ear of Malchus, who is the servant of the high priest. The second sword, very probably, is the Sicarii that Simon the Zealot has been carrying on his thigh all these years. 
Literally, the disciples hear Jesus teaching. They sense that something bad's about to happen. And Simon goes, you have my sword. And then there's, uh, or Peter says that. Then Simon the Zealot says, and here's my knife. And there's Gimli right and my axe. You guys have seen this scene. It's all of them together saying to Jesus, we will fight for you to the death. But Simon the Zealot meant it. And if you can just imagine the tension around the campfire as Matthew the apostate sellout to Rome is trying to fall asleep with one eye open while he hears Simon the Zealot sharpening his knife in the glint of the campfire, okay? Have you ever led a Bible study where one of the people in the Bible study was like slowly inching around the circle to cut the throat of somebody else that was sitting across from them? This is the life group that Jesus carried with him from place to place. These are the men with this much tension and hatred in their hearts. They find something in Jesus that is unique that draws them in and forces them to navigate relationships they would have never made time for. Okay, last one, and this one's the shortest. This is bad Judas, Judas Iscariot, Judas the traitor. His symbol is a rope because after he sold Jesus out, he took his own life. And we believe, based on the separate accounts that the Bible gives us, that probably that hanging was failed, excuse me, was botched. He didn't do a good job, and he was hanging there dangling, and so he grabbed his own knife and cut his own stomach open to end his life quickly. And that's why we have two accounts, one that he was hanged and one that he spilled his guts out on the field that he bought with the silver that he earned for selling out Jesus. So these are the men. This is the first class, the graduating class of 33 AD from Jesus' school of eternal life. And if I can quickly summarize these guys for you, here's the way that I would characterize them. You have a firebrand in Peter. You have a model disciple in his brother Andrew. I'm sure that created lots of tension for those two guys. You have a controversial loudmouth in James, an introspective idealist in John, who goes so far as to write his whole own story of Jesus at the end of his life, featuring himself over and over again. You have a pragmatist in Philip. You have an honest skeptic in Nathaniel. And then you have someone who's willing to die for Jesus in Thomas. You have a sellout in Matthew, a nobody, literally, in James the Lesser, a fanatic in good Judas, someone willing to kill for Jesus in Simon the Zealot, and a traitor in bad Judas. This is where we'll end our time today. My application is simple for you. These are 12 ordinary men. These are 12 people with baggage and wounds and scars and disagreements and friction all over their relationships with each other, misunderstandings of who Jesus is, misinterpreting the Old Testament scrolls of Scripture, not knowing where they're going next, not sure if God is who he says he is. Their faith was thin enough that when Jesus went to the cross, they all went into hiding, every one of them. They're not that different from you and I. The evidence of transformation is not that God calls the coolest and best and sharpest people. It's that from the beginning of time, God has called to himself the very worst, the lowest, the most low-down, sneaky, dishonest, conniving, backbiting, violent, abusive kinds of people. He calls them out, and he says, come with me, and I will change you into who you wished you would have been before we met. I will make you into the kind of person when people meet you where they'll say, something has changed. Something has transformed you because I knew you when you were scum, and now you're somebody worth knowing. And it's not because you worked hard enough, and it's not because you figured out the secret. It's because Jesus changed you. He called you out, and now you can follow him. So I have four fast questions. On this list, who are you? Who do you identify with? I bet one of these makes you laugh. I know in my home, I tend to relate sometimes with the honest skeptic. Uh, At other times, I feel like a nobody. I can be a controversial loudmouth, and the longer I walk with Jesus, the more I relate to bad Judas, the heart of a traitor who's been close to God and would still betray him, sometimes at a moment's notice. I would ask you to consider, who is it that you're struggling with in your life? Who's hard to be with right now? And can you understand that maybe they're not that bad? Maybe they're more like you than you thought, and maybe that, that 
person, Jesus, who stands between you and them is all you need to tolerate them, to love them, to forgive them. Maybe right now there are skeptics in your life that are driving you crazy. Maybe there's a sellout who you want to turn your back on because how could they betray you? Or maybe there's an idealist that you feel like is living in a way that just isn't true to God and his word. Who on this list in your life might need repentance from you? Might need to hear you say, I'm sorry. Have you allowed your judgment of someone like this to justify treating them with contempt or hatred? Have you justified outright meanness towards someone like this? How have you responded to the fanatics around you? How do you respond to those who are misguided? What do you do when you meet people who literally, and I've met them, are ready to kill for Jesus? How do we have a relationship with someone like that? And how do we trust Jesus to be the source of their transformation? And then finally, who needs your forgiveness? Maybe a firebrand or a sellout or a traitor needs to be looked in the eye and told, I forgive you. It's going to be okay. God has shown me enough grace and mercy that I can offer this to you, that we can go back to square one and we can have a clean slate of relationship between the two of us. All the application that I have for you today is that the disciples were 12 real men with real issues. Jesus loved them anyway. He loved them while they were broken. He loved them before they had ever said they were sorry or before a one of them had ever tried to change. The heart of the gospel is that kind of grace. It's mercy that you can never deserve, which is offered freely to you by God. And you need that grace. And you need to be able to give that kind of grace. You receive it from Jesus so you can give it to others. Jesus loved these 12 men with all of their flaws, all of their problems, all of the headaches that they caused him. He loved them to the end. No greater love is there than this, that a man would lay down his life for these 12 friends. And Jesus did that. And you can relax into that love today because he loves you the same way. You can rest in Jesus. So I want to pray that for you now, and I want to ask God to just remind you how welcome you are in his family today. Father, we love you and we trust you. Um, maybe some of us are running a little low on the trust part right now. Uh, I know, God, that this is a season of extreme transition in the lives of many people in our congregation. And with transition comes question marks and comes hope and then comes disappointment as we don't know what's next and we don't know where to go and we want so badly to be faithful, God, we do all that we can in our own power to put ourselves on the right track. But ultimately, we reach a point, whether we've won or we've lost, where we have to look you in the eyes and ask you to be who you say you are. Ask you, God, to be sovereign in our lives. Ask you to be gracious and kind to us. Ask you to show us love and to forgive us again and again and again. And so, Father, we come to you in awe of the great patience that you showed these 12 men, that you loved them to the very end, that they could never offend you or out your grace or run you off with their bad behavior, but that you were able to stay and stay and stay. God, remind us that you have that staying power in our lives and teach us, too, to be.